Good morning. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court, James Moore on behalf of the State of South Dakota. This case involves the State's efforts to regulate its initiative and referendum process. As the Court knows from the previous decision in South Dakota Voice versus Nome, the current legislation, SB 180, follows a previous bill, House Bill 1094, um, that was substantially broader in scope than the legislation that's currently at issue. The, the legislation under review today was, in fact, narrowed in response to constitutional deficiencies found by Judge Kornman. And this legislation was then challenged on similar grounds, and the district court entered a preliminary injunction and joining all of SB 180 based on a facial challenge to the bill. Um, given the preliminary injunction context, the analytical framework involves the injunction factors. I'm going to start with likelihood of success on the merits, talk about the applicable standard of review and the burdens and the interests at issue in this case. Um, and I'll try to get through all, all of that and answer whatever questions the court has about any of the other issues in the case. With respect to the standard of review that applies in this case, obviously the court's challenge is drawing the line between reasonable regulation of state elections and unconstitutional burdens on First Amendment speech. There's been a lot written about the applicable standard. There's less certainty, I think, in agreement on what standard applies in what context under the First Amendment. My sense from reviewing the Supreme Court cases since Buckley and this Court's cases is that a sliding standard of review based on the Anderson Burdick framework is the applicable standard for most of SB 180 in this case. And I think the predominant reason that's the case is because of the electoral context of the case and the fact that the state is regulating its initiative and referendum process, which is a state-created right, not a federal constitutional right. And while petition circulators based on Buckley... Counsel, in that regard, uh, you've argued that uh, the ballot committee has no protected First Amendment interest to engage in the initiative uh, process uh, because the right rises only under state law. That's on page 14 of your brief. Uh, how do you square that with Meyer versus Grant? Um, Meyer versus Grant said that said that there is. I I think it's hard, Your Honor, to distinguish between um, the the First Amendment the First Amendment right and the the state created process. Um, I think petition circulators clearly have a right. I think in Meyer versus Grant, the the there was an extremely broad effort. Um, with respect to the legislation that was at issue there that prohibited all paid circulators, um, not just a regulation of paid circulators. And so I think that the, the, the cases since Meyer versus Grant have been more deferential to the state and have in fact emphasized that when there is a state-created process, um, that the state's interests are due more deference. So the, the, the question that you asked to some extent goes to the standing issue. 
I think the standing issue morphs into the burden analysis. I think it morphs into the irreparable harm analysis. Is that really, you know, I'm just thinking through, I'm trying to analogize this to other, other areas of First Amendment activity, and in particular, the judicial election line of cases, right? I realize we don't have a judicial election issue here, but that is unique, as unique as can be to state law. And you have the White case, and you have all these cases saying the First Amendment interest is exactly the same, even though this is a, this is a creature of state law. Uh, and in those cases, they actually apply strict scrutiny. So I guess I don't understand why it matters. If it's, if it's, if it's an election, if it's a, if it's a referendum, uh, I don't know why it matters for First Amendment purposes, um, the state, why it's a, a unique state procedure. And, and my argument isn't that there's no First Amendment interest here. I think that's clear based on Buckley. My argument is based on the decisions that say the state's interests, um, the, the state is entitled to regulate um, its initiative and render ref- referendum processes, and in that regulation and in reviewing that regulation, the state is entitled to considerable deference, to substantial latitude, to some leeway. And so I think that unless that language is just puffery and doesn't have any meaning, it has to, it has to have some effect on the standard of review. And I think the two most applicable cases from this court for the context of this case are the Miller versus Thurston decision and the Institute referendum versus Jaeger case in which – Is the argument here that there's no ex- – that exacting scrutiny then is not the standard of review? Is that the argument you're trying to make? It, it depends on what exacting scrutiny means. And um, I if – if exacting scrutiny means what the Supreme Court said exacting scrutiny is in the American Foundations, Americans for Prosperity Foundation case versus Bonta, um, then no, I don't think that standard applies. That standard requires narrow tailoring, narrow tailoring and a compelling governmental interest. Well, let me ask you this. How do you square that then with Calzone, our recent on uh, banc decision? That was a unique state. There are a lot of unique state procedures set up there. And we said it's a disclosure law, therefore it's exacting scrutiny. And we even suggested at one point, although the Supreme Court, I think, has scaled back on that, that there could even be strict scrutiny in those circumstances. Although in Calzone, the standard that the court applied, although exacting scrutiny, referred to a substantial relation to a sufficiently important governmental interest, which is different than the recitation of the standard in the Bonte decision. And I think you have to square Calzone with Miller versus Thurston. And I think Miller versus Thurston is closer to the facts of this case. And in Miller versus Thurston, it was sufficient that the legislation advanced an important interest. So I don't think the label controls, and I think that you have to get away from the label and look at the context and the facts. And don't we have to take Bonta into consideration? Well, to some extent, yes. I think it's a hard case to take into consideration because there was a lot of uncertainty at the Supreme Court. There was, there were three three justices who agreed on the standard of review in that case. Um, so it's hard to it's hard to come away from that decision saying it's clear that this is a standard that applies. And I think you have to again distinguish the context, which is different. Um, when we're talking about uh, the initiative and referendum process, there's a lot of language, and, and you can go back to the Doe versus Reed case from 2011, in which the Supreme Court talked about um, the importance of the state's interests in um, in not only regulating that process, but in recognizing that it is an inherently public process, 
and that the public has a role to play in basically ensuring that there's not only no fraud in the process of circulating petitions, but no mistakes made in that process. So I think when you look at the burdens in this case and when you look at the state's interests, one of the important things to keep in mind is that they, that, that they are subject to a different standard. With respect to burdens, um, the, the, the um, courts have said that, um, that a generalized fear isn't enough that bare assertions aren't enough, that you need facts establishing that the legislation actually burdens a circulator's First Amendment right. With respect to the state's interests, however, the state is allowed more leeway than that. And the Miller versus Thurston decision, in fact, says that the state doesn't need empirical justification for um, for legislation. We, in fact, have empirical justification in, in this case based on the decision in Johnson versus Krebs, the lawsuit that was litigated in which Judge Devaney entered a writ of mandamus prohibiting an initiated measure from being on the ballot after the initiated measure had been certified to be on the ballot after the Secretary of State completed the review process that was going on there. And um, I think it's important to note that the Secretary of State's review process invalidated 200 signatures, and through the litigation process, there were another 116 signatures that were invalidated. That bill, and there's, there's testimony in the record in the form of affidavits, um, that bill was the genesis, that, I'm sorry, that lawsuit was the genesis for both HB 1094 and for SB 180. The state acted on what it saw was a problem with particularly paid petition circulators. But not solely with paid circulators, Not right? solely, but predominantly is the adverb that's in the affidavit. Was that the 2018 petition that you talked about as far as the statistical analysis? Um, I believe it was, I, yes, I think it's 2018. It preceded both bills. I had a question about that. The, uh, your brief asserts on page 27 that You've presented evidence of corruption and compromised election integrity uh, in that 45% of sample signatures on this petition were declared invalid. And my question is, does that really show evidence of corruption or just clerical errors? I, I think that's a fair point, Your Honor, and I, I'm not prepared to stand here today and say that the state's primary interest was fraud or corruption. But I think that goes to our, regardless of what standard of review we that we apply, we have to know what the state's interest is. And if the state uh, is asserting an interest in preventing fraud and corruption, you've already got uh, a wide array of statutes already in place to address that. So at what point does it become cumulative, and how does that affect our analysis? Well, I think the, I think the reason that the, that the Johnson versus Krebs litigation is significant, Your Honor, is because it highlighted the fact that existing procedures were not sufficient to prevent the problems that occurred in that case. Clerical problems or fraud? In that case, Your Honor, I think it's fair to read Judge Devaney's decision as related to clerical problems. But again, Doe versus Reed says preventing mistakes is a legitimate interest. The state clearly has an interest in doing that. So I don't... There's no question that it's a legitimate interest, but it has to be uh, substantially related or narrowly tailored to meet that interest. And if you've already got a whole array of statutes in place and you just keep adding more, 
that affects our analysis. But I, but I think the evidence in the case is that the existing statutes were ineffective, Your Honor. I don't know, I don't know how you get past that. What, what evidence? Again, the fact that initiated Measure 26, based on the Secretary of State's review, would have been on the ballot. But for the litigation and the court's writ of mandamus, it would have been on the ballot. So existing procedures in that, in, in that context were not sufficient. And the Secretary of State did not catch all of the mistakes. Maybe, maybe I'm missing something, but are you telling me the evidence of fraud and corruption or evidence of errors in the petition? Evidence of errors such that the signatures were invalidated for whatever reason. That's not fraud. No, I agree, Your Honor. The, the affidavit that's in, in evidence and the, and the writ from Judge Devaney doesn't, doesn't show fraud. It shows invalid signatures. So what does all this have to do with, I mean, if that's true, if we're talking about mistakes, what does all this have to do with paid circulators? You admitted that it wasn't solely paid circulators. So I wonder whether, at the very least, this is substantially under-inclusive because we could have unpaid circulators, people who don't know what they're doing, don't get training, make as many mistakes as paid circulators. And, and the evidence in the case is that the problems that were encountered in, in the litigation were with predominantly with paid circulators. And based on Judge Kornman's invalidation of the definition of petition circulator, which applied to all circulators, not just paid circulators, and which was determined to be unconstitutional, the legislature narrowed the scope of the bill. So about, I think it's an effort to narrow. Yeah, what about the, you know, and I, and, and, and I think what undermines that to some extent is what, the, the, what was stated about the reasons for the legislation, which is it was to keep liberal interests from out of state influencing local politics, right? And so it seems like the state's interests were less about reducing mistakes and more about targeting specifically um, paid circulators, which is almost an animus. It's not quite animus, but a, but a targeting of the paid circulators. Yeah, the Supreme Court has said that if there's a legitimate non-discriminatory reason for legislation, it doesn't matter that that particular legislators may have had partisan interests or motives no, in voting for it. That's fair, but that's mostly in rational basis review. As we know from cases like Masterpiece Cake Shop, that doesn't, that doesn't always uh, apply in, in strict scrutiny, and maybe it's an open question on, exact, on exacting scrutiny. I, th I think there's clear evidence here, though, Your Honor, that there was a problem um, and that the legislature focused on paid circulators in response to the problem. I want to reserve at least 30 seconds, and, if that's uh, all right. Mr. Moore, I'll, I'll give you three minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. All right. All right, Mr. Leach, you may proceed when you're ready. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court. Buckley versus American Constitutional Law Foundation established that petition circulation is core political speech for which First Amendment protection is at its zenith. For three reasons, the district court properly entered a preliminary injunction against SB 180. First, SB 180 requires every paid circulator before beginning to circulate to disclose to a public registry for 
uh, publication in that public registry available to the entire world, the circulator's name, home address, email address, and telephone number, thereby surrendering all anonymity, privacy, and freedom from harassment. The state has no legitimate interest whatsoever in making all that information for paid circulators available to the general public at the beginning of the process. Council, what if they just limited that to uh, their name and address? Would that uh, serve a state interest? Uh, no, certainly not, because the address is leads uh, let would let harassers go directly to the home, and that was that you know that's the initial problem. I did have another question about that as well. So, uh, as I understand the process, the verification of the petition signatures occurs at the end of the process. Yes. And that this requires disclosure up front. Is there? Does the state explain the interest in upfront disclosure? No, it doesn't. And, Your Honor, that's an enormous problem with that statute, with this statute. Uh, in South Dakota, their petition circulation can be in, begin 24 months before an election. And the, the signatures are due either 12 months, if it's a constitutional amendment, or six months uh, before the election, if it's an initiated measure. So all this information is required to be disclosed before circulation even can begin, whereas the state has no need for it whatsoever until the end of the process, when it actually receives the signatures all at once and counts the signatures and evaluates the 700 statistically selected. So there's no connection whatsoever between the two. And with no connection, there's no state legitimate interest, and it cannot stand any scrutiny, let alone exacting scrutiny, as defined in Calzone to being a substantial relationship to a sufficiently important governmental interest. And I'm, I'm holding my hands so far apart just to represent the time period between beginning to collect signatures and the end when the state actually needs the information. And on that point, Your Honor, I'd like to give you one citation that's not in my brief, but that I think is important enough that I want to mention it today. And that is South Dakota uh, Administrative Rule 05 colon 02 colon 08 colon 07, which says that at the time petitions are submitted at the end of the process, the circulator, whether paid or unpaid, must disclose under oath and penalty of perjury his or her name and home address. So the state already has that information per that regulation that it needs to consider these signatures. So Suppose, this, though, that I just want to I want to push you on that. Suppose that you change it from I think you mentioned that rule and I, I wasn't aware of it that sets it at the end. Suppose now sets it at the end. It sets it at the end when you when you submit the petition. My question is, suppose you you have the same facts as Judge Graz suggested, except for now it's not publicly disclosed. 
it's retained by the Secretary of State or whoever runs the elections. And the idea would be we need to figure out if somebody complains about a paid circulator and their conduct or says that they're acting in an inappropriate way, we need a way to contact those circulators. So mandatory disclosure, but it's not disclosed to the public. Would that be uh, constitutionally acceptable? Uh, no, Your Honor, because it's still a burden with no purpose. Your, in your hypothetical, the uh, possibility was that someone complained about a circulator. Well, people complain about other people, of course, every day, and there's a method for dealing with them, which is to call the police officer if there's some problem. I don't know what the other complaint would be. Well, somebody trying to coerce me to sign a petition, not in, not in a physical or a criminal way, uh, but harassing me to the point where, um, you know, I feel like I'm just trying to get them off my property or, off, you know, leave me alone. I don't want to sign the petition. And so they complain to the Secretary of State's office about a, uh, about a paid, paid or unpaid circulator. I guess that theoretically could happen, but it doesn't seem a very likely way to uh, persuade someone to sign a petition by harassing them once they turn their back and exercise the right to walk away. I'm asking the question because I'm trying to figure out how far your rule goes, and I think I disagree with you. I think that if, if, you, if you ask them ahead of time, not only for the purpose of verifying the signatures, but kept that information private, I think the burdens become awfully low on the paid circulator. Well, then you're uh, raising the question, though, of the second problem with this statute, which is that the, uh, if the circulator does not comply exactly with this and does not update every seven days, let's say goes to the eighth day, then every signature collected from honest voters is disqualified. And in Miller versus Thurston, this court held that a signature on a petition is core political speech. And so the way this statute is written, even if that initial information is not disclosed to the public, all those votes are disqualified for, for no reason or, or possibly this theoretical possibility that some crazy circulator could try to persuade someone by getting in their face. Right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I was addressing only the point of, the point of disclosure, but you're right that there's some other parts of this bill that also create burdens. Whether they're unconstitutional burdens is what we have to decide, but they do create burdens. Yes, and, and on this second point, um, where we're talking about the, uh, what, what all these people must disclose at the beginning and the penalty on honest voters, that is, the state has no interest in disqualifying the signature of an honest voter because the circulator failed after obtaining it to update within seven days perhaps moving and perhaps completely inadvertently. You know, a college student goes back to school at the end of the school year and doesn't change address within eight days or anyone moves or anyone changes their email address. State has no interest in disqualifying those voters' signatures, no legitimate interest, and certainly it cannot rise to the level of exacting scrutiny under Calzone with a substantial relationship to a sufficiently important 
government interest. So it's, it's, maybe I've already made my point, but it's not just what the burden is and whether there's a minimal burden, but it's the effect on core political speech of voters' signature from uh, this rule the state has imposed. We've covered the first two grounds why this statute is unconstitutional. The third ground I'd like to turn to now is that it applies only to paid circulators. And in the uh, district court, we argued that under Citizens United, strict scrutiny applies. And there's no compelling state interest possible because this is a citizen initiative. And a citizen initiative cannot engage in quid pro quo corruption. The district court found it unnecessary to reach that issue because under exacting scrutiny, this law was unconstitutional on that third ground as well. Likewise, we're in the same position in this court. We're asserting strict scrutiny, but you need not reach it. That question, whether strict scrutiny applies, because we are, uh, because under exacting scrutiny it goes out, because there is no substantial relationship to a significantly important governmental interest to focus and discriminate only against paid circulators, thereby discriminating against the use of money to enable political speech, which, of course, is the core holding of Citizens United. So the state has violated that rule of discriminating against money to enable political speech. And in doing so, it does not meet exacting scrutiny. It does not meet either uh, strict scrutiny or exacting scrutiny. Mr. Leach, in your view, is there anything in the record that indicates a higher level of fraud or error um, on petitions circulated by paid circulators as opposed to volunteers? The only thing in the record, Your Honor, is this one affidavit from Representative Hansen. Uh, and Representative Hansen, as was discussed during my friend's argument, uh, is a compromised witness because of what he said to the newspaper about the purpose of SB 10, of HB 1094, which is the immediate cut and paste predecessor of SB uh, of SB 180. But continuing, Your Honor, even putting that aside, in that situation, Representative Hansen testifies that in past 10 years, he knows of one case where there's been a problem, and that's this 2018 case. In that case, the system worked, and the proposed initiative was disqualified. And the system worked through this two-part process that the state has set up as part of its arsenal of safeguards. The first part being the Secretary of State reviews. The Secretary of State finds 200 to go out on their face. And then it goes to the circuit court. That's the second part of the two-step process. And the circuit court has to, dis has to disqualify. It's going to dis if it's going to disqualify 65 signatures, then the uh, ballot, then the initiative goes out. Well, the circuit court, on the face of these petitions, disqualifies 106. 102 of them, because they're not properly completed, 
and four of them because they're duplicates. And there's only 10 signatures left in question, which don't matter to anyone, in which uh, no one knows the reason why. But is there any evidence about what percentage of those disqualified signatures were collected by paid um, by paid people as opposed to volunteers? I simply no. don't recall. No, there isn't. And to add to that point, Your Honor, I mean, all the affidavit says is predominant problems. Mr. Lynch, I think the, the state of South Dakota would probably argue that uh, paid circulators have an inherent financial incentive to cut corners. And, uh, you know, forge signatures, cut corners. And because they have a paramount interest in preserving election integrity, that that allows them some leeway in regulating paid circulators. How would you respond to that? Well, I'd respond with, with two points, Your Honor. First of all, some leeway is a long ways from proving satisfying exacting scrutiny. But to go to the factual question, I mean, the district court in this case, and if I'm not mistaken, the Supreme Court in Buckley said that paid circulators have an added incentive to be correct and accurate so that they can get, so they can keep their jobs and they can continue to be hired for that work because no paid circulator who uh, creates errors like this and thereby endangers the petition is ever going to be hired again. So with that, Your Honor, I, I see my time is almost up. I'd like to leave you with the words of Justice Thomas concurring in McCutcheon versus FEC in 2014, in which he wrote that political speech is the primary object of First Amendment protection and is the lifeblood of a self-governing people. Thankfully, we have decisions such as Citizens United, Calzone, and Bonta, which follow that principle. This, in this case, Judge Pearsall's decision correctly follows that principle. I see my time is up. I'll just finish my sentence, if I may, Your Honor. Thank you, Your Honor. Judge Pearsall's decision properly follows that principle. And uh, to do anything other than to affirm would be to let a little of the lifeblood out of the First Amendment. Thus, we ask the court to affirm the, the preliminary injunction and remand for consideration of the permanent injunction. Thank you, and thank you for allowing me to exceed my time, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Leach. Mr. Moore, you may proceed with rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. To start at the end, again, the, the language and the standard matters in this case. There's a big difference between some leeway being afforded to the state and considerable leeway being afforded to the state, which is the, the language that the Supreme Court has used. There's a considerable difference between requiring the state to prove statistically what 
percentage of problems are due to paid circulators and what percentage to fraud. And this court's language in Miller versus Thurston that empirical justification and elaboration is not necessary in this particular context. Counsel, I want to ask you the question I asked opposing counsel, because I, I think it goes directly to narrow tailoring more than anything else, which is um, why disclose it to the public? You heard me ask a hypothetical to opposing counsel. I think he probably gave me, at least in my view, the wrong answer, which is I think that um, it would pass strict or would pass exacting scrutiny or be narrowly tailored um, if it was solely kept within the Secretary of State. But I see no reason to publicly disclose it other than to facilitate harassment or to make those paid circulators look bad. So to, to, to start at the end, um, if that's a problem with SB 180 at the end of the day, then it can be severed and it can be limited on that basis, the court's injunction, rather than a facial invalidation of SB 180 altogether, which is what happened in this case. Secondly, I don't agree, Your Honor, based on the language that primarily the language from the Supreme Court's decision in Doe versus Reed, where there's extensive conversation about the role the public plays in this inherently public process and the, the role that the public can play in basically trying to prevent and correct mistakes before the petitions are submitted at the end of the process. And then I would go, Your Honor, back to the question of burden, which is what evidence is there in this case with respect to this legislation in South Dakota that that's a burden? The public registry is available by contacting the Secretary of State. The evidence in the case is that no one has ever contacted the Secretary of State to ask for that. Could Judge, you, but, you know, I'm going I'm to stop you there, because couldn't you ensure accuracy, ensure no fraud, by simply having the government, governmental entities themselves ask for this information up front? I just, I don't see what in the enforcement mechanism could possibly be furthered uh, by public disclosure. Well, again, I think that, that, you identified the argument yourself based on some of the language in Doe versus Reed. Secondly, I think at this point you're clearly applying a narrow tailoring requirement as part of the standard, which I'm not conceding applies in this case. I don't think that's part of the review process under the Anderson Burdick sliding standard of review, and I think that's what applies here. Um, in 10 seconds, I encourage you to go back and reread the Yeager decision from that Judge Haney wrote. Um, I think it's very, very hard to square the result in that case and the court's analysis from the decision the district court reached here. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Mr. Moore.